Good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7. We're now in the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. This week we'll cover verses 1 to 12, and then next week we'll look at Jesus' final section in this section, verses 13 through 19. And even though Jesus has said a lot in these past two chapters, he has stayed close to his main theme, the kingdom of heaven, and how his disciples are to live as citizens of that kingdom. He told us first that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And while that seemed crazy at first, Jesus has shown over and over again that the scribes and Pharisees have a fake righteousness. They're hypocrites, posers, who pretend to love God, but they show that they really love the praise of man and the rewards of this world. In the second half of chapter 5, Jesus showed us that the scribes and Pharisees pretend to know and follow God's law, but they twist it and distort it so that they don't actually have to obey it. In chapter 6, he showed us that they participate in these acts of piety that show devotion to God, but the whole time they don't really have their eye on God. Rather, they are doing all of these things to be seen and praised by other people. In each of those scenarios, Jesus calls us, his disciples, to something different. We are called to obey the very depths of the law. We don't just avoid murder, but sinful anger. We don't just avoid adultery, but even lustful thoughts. We don't seek revenge on those who mock and abuse us, but we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And Jesus calls us to live our lives in a way that isn't seeking the praise of other people, but instead is seeking the secret praise of our Father in heaven. A life that is lived for the lasting joy that is found in communion with God rather than the cheap pleasures of being enslaved to the stuff of the world. That was chapters 5 and 6. Now in this first part of chapter 7, Jesus addresses one more misuse of God's law. Jesus tells us that one of our temptations will be to use everything in God's law not as an incentive to my own repentance, but as a way to avoid my own sin and push the blame and attention on the sins of others. And Jesus is going to call us away from that temptation, again, to righteousness. A righteousness that isn't on the surface, but goes all the way to the heart. But before we hear his words in this passage, let's pray to God and ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And just as a reminder, where you see that word brother 
In the Greek, it's sibling. And so in these passages, I'm going to say brother or sister so that we see how broad Jesus' command is. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother or sister's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. So we look at this passage today, we're going to look at the two sections, one before the other. So first we're going to see what Jesus says about judgment, and then we'll see what he says about prayer and how those two are connected. The passage opens with this abrupt command, judge not, that you be not judged. You've probably heard that command a number of times. It's one of Jesus' sayings that has made its way into popular vocabulary. The word judge can be a fairly neutral term. It can simply mean to evaluate a person or situation and come to a conclusion. In Luke 7, Jesus tells a Pharisee that he has judged rightly when he interprets a parable correctly. In Acts 20, Paul makes a judgment or a decision to sail past Ephesus instead of stopping on his way to Jerusalem. In those cases, judging means assessing the situation or the evidence in front of you and coming to a conclusion about how to act or how to interpret what you see. So to judge is to decide. But the word judge can also have a legal sense. It can mean to condemn or to deliver a verdict about someone. So the imagery you might have is of a judge sitting in a courtroom declaring that a person is guilty of a crime. As we'll see, this is primarily what Jesus is talking about here. Not just assessing a situation and making a decision, but assessing a person and delivering a verdict about that person. Specifically here, Jesus is talking about evaluating and determining the sinfulness of your brother or sister in Christ. In studying this passage, some commentators have said that it's not clear how Jesus' command about judgment relates to his previous teaching. He was talking about the motives of your heart and storing up treasure in heaven and not being anxious about the things you need. 
And then he jumps right into a command about not judging each other. But if we reflect back for a moment, the meaning becomes pretty clear. Remember, Jesus has given just about 80 verses of instruction to us about how we are to live as his disciples in this world. Many of those commands were hard and convicting of our own sin and failure to live up to them. Think back on those commands of Jesus for a second. Murder and hatred. Adultery and lust. Not keeping your word. Loving your enemy. Not practicing your righteousness to be seen by other people. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many times over the last several weeks, as you heard those commands, did your mind turn toward the ways that other people needed to hear this? Boy, I'm glad my spouse is hearing all this about anger and road rage. I sure would like to send this one about keeping your word to my boss. The Pharisees parading their good deeds in front of other people sure reminds me of that friend of mine on Facebook. Jesus knows the sinful human heart pretty well. He knows that as we listen to God's call to live the Christian life, we are tempted to take everything that he says and primarily apply it to someone else. This is one of the ways that we make ourselves feel better. When God's commands begin to convict you of your own sin, one way to deal with that conviction is to change the subject. Personal conviction is uncomfortable. We don't like it. It makes us feel bad. So when the Holy Spirit is prodding your heart that you have been enveloped in anger, one way to avoid that conviction is to turn your mind to the conviction that someone else should have. We avoid having to deal with our own disobedience by thinking on the disobedience of a brother or sister. It's clear that this is what Jesus has in mind because the rest of the passage doesn't just talk about judging in general. Jesus talks about judgment in the context of comparison. The illustration he uses includes both my sin and the sin of my brother or sister. Listen to what he says In verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. If you ever wondered if humor is a Christian virtue, then you don't need to wonder anymore. Picture the scene. An ophthalmologist, a doctor of the eye, is leaning over trying to extract a speck of dust from someone's eye. But it's a little difficult for him to maneuver with a four or five foot log somehow wedged in his own eye. Jesus is making a joke. He is highlighting the fact that you are more concerned with sin the size of a speck in your brother's eye than you are with your own sin that is the size of a log or a plank. This is our tendency to minimize and explain away our own sin. I didn't really mean to do that. My heart was in the right place. 
but it is also to magnify and prosecute the sins of others. That wasn't an accident. She knew exactly what she was doing. We excuse our own sin and magnify the sins of our brothers and sisters. And Jesus teaches us to do the opposite. You should see your own sin as a log or a plank, and the sin of your brother or sister as a speck. Notice that Jesus doesn't actually say that your sin is bigger or more heinous than the sin of your brother, but he flips our tendency upside down. Rather than minimizing and excusing your own sin, he tells you that your sin ought to be magnified in your own eye, and the sin of your brother or sister should seem small. But this isn't the only thing that Jesus says. His words don't just cut in one direction. He doesn't simply say, don't judge your brother or sister. Remember, broadly speaking, judging is evaluating a situation or person and coming to a conclusion. After Jesus tells us to see our sin as large and the sins of others as small, he tells us what to do about it. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus doesn't prohibit all judgment of the sins of your brother or sister, but sinful and false judgment. He actually does command us to judge one another. In John 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Just a few verses from where we are now in Matthew 7, 15 to 16, Jesus will require us to assess or judge when he warns, beware of false prophets, especially by evaluating the way they are living their lives. In Matthew 18, 15, he commands us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. This requires the judgment that a brother has sinned. Jesus has no tolerance for the live and let live lifestyle that so many want us to embrace. He never tells you that you shouldn't care about the sins of your brother. He tells you to assess and judge them rightly. And rather than judging and mumbling internally, just to soothe your own conscience, he tells you that you must help them. This is where the illustration Jesus uses here is so helpful. Notice that the illustration has to do with impediments in the eye. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how the eye is the organ of evaluation. Your eye is what you use to assess, and then your mind and heart make a determination or a judgment about what you see. Jesus is telling you that your own sin distorts your vision. You can't see the sins of others clearly when you yourself are caught up in sin. He's not making some rule about how you aren't allowed to call anyone out until you are perfectly free from sin. He is alerting you to the fact that you are not always a reliable judge. You yourself are hindered by sin. And so you need to be thoughtful and careful about the way that sin distorts your assessment of others and of other situations. Jesus here, by cutting in both directions, takes two common misunderstandings 
about sin and judgment, and he cuts through both of them. One common way to think about sin is in terms of groups of people. My group of people is righteous, and your group of people is sinful. That can be political parties, ethnicities, religious groups, social classes, etc. The key is that the lines between the groups are clear lines between sin and righteousness. We are good, and they are bad. Another common way to talk about sin is to do away with it. To completely eliminate the categories of sin and righteousness, usually as a way to do away with judgment. This thinking says that there is neither wrong, there is nothing wrong with any of us, and we need to accept one another just as we are. What Jesus says cuts across both those ways of thinking. Jesus says that you must judge your brother. But you must never judge your brother without the realization that you are a sinner as well. Sin is so serious that we must do something about it. We can't possibly hate our brother or sister so much to let them be crushed by the burden of sin or caught up in the deceitfulness of sin. But sin is so pervasive that it often deceives me too. This is a call for humble and loving judgment. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul gives instructions for dealing with a brother or sister in sin. Listen to what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Notice how cautious Paul is about our own sin. In the midst of confronting a brother or sister in sin, you must keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Like so much of the Sermon on the Mount, this goes right back to the Beatitudes. What is the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember, this is about realizing our own spiritual bankruptcy. Realizing that you are not high and mighty, but weak and needy. And so when we think of the commands of Jesus, and we think about them in relation to the sins of our brothers and sisters, Jesus tells us to see our own spiritual bankruptcy first. See your own failures, your own weakness and unrighteousness more clearly than you see anyone else's. It's in that place that you are actually able to help your brother or sister in their sin. It is the place of humble and loving judgment. Verse 6, which follows this statement about judgment, is a bit confusing. I take it to mean that Jesus is saying that there is a time to remove our judgment. If a brother or sister has become so hardened and unreceptive to your help, then there is a time to stop putting the law of God before them because they are just trampling it and us under their feet. 
This doesn't mean that they are beyond God's grace or unable to be saved. But it does mean, as Jesus says later, that when a professing Christian is hardened and callous to calls to repentance, the church is to treat them as an unbeliever. There's more that can be said on that, but Matthew 18 explains that more fully and addresses the process more directly. In the next verse here, verse 7, Jesus seems to make another abrupt change. He was just talking about judging brothers and sisters, and then he teaches us about prayer. Look at verses 7 to 11 with me. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Notice first that these three terms, excuse me, these three terms for petitions are terms for petitions, requesting help in some way or fashion. They are clearly requests for help from God because Jesus turns at the end to the character of God in verse 11, tells us about God's faithfulness to answer our prayers. These two parallel phrases in verses 7 and 8 drive the point home. There is no one who asks who will not receive. There is no one who seeks who won't find. There is no one who knocks who will not have the door open to him. So what is this about? How did Jesus get from a prohibition against hasty and sinful judgment to a short discourse on prayer? The key to the connection between these two sections is why Jesus begins talking about judgment in the first place. Why do we judge sinfully? Why do we focus our attention on the sins of our brothers and sisters? Usually it is because we ourselves are convicted. We've just heard these many verses of Jesus telling us how Christians are supposed to live in God's kingdom. And when you feel the pinch of that guilt that you haven't lived in that way, one way to deal with that guilt and weakness is to deflect it onto someone else. I may not be perfect, but she is way worse than I am. We soothe our consciences by looking at the failures and sins of others. Jesus has already said that our eyes need adjusting when we do that. But here, he says something different. He gives us a different way to deal with that guilt and that weakness. He says when you are met with your failure and your inability to to obey God's law, just ask for help. Jesus gives us prayer as an alternative to judgment for dealing with our guilt. He's done this twice already in the Sermon on the Mount. In the midst of temptation, the alternative he often gives us is to pray. In Matthew 5, he said that when you are tempted to exact revenge on someone who has taken advantage of you or is even persecuting you, pray for them. 
In chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus said that when you are tempted to worry and be overcome with anxiety about the future, instead of worrying, pray. These are our alternatives to the ways we think of dealing with our own problems. Jesus tells us to go outside of ourselves to deal with our sin and temptation. And so here, he says, when you are tempted to let the weight of sin be relieved by focusing on the sins of your brother, instead pray. Ask God for his help. The content of the prayer in the passage is ambiguous. Jesus doesn't say it explicitly. He doesn't say what we are asking for, what we are seeking, or what we are hoping to get when we knock. But I think there's good reason to see that this is asking for forgiveness and for strength to obey. Week after week in this Sermon on the Mount, we have seen Jesus' high standard of the law. Not a dot or an iota will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. Our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The law is not just about external actions, but also about the state of your heart and your motives. All of these lead us to call out like the Apostle Paul, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is a cry that can only be made by those who know their guilt and know that they must be saved from it. Someone other than you must save you from the sin and death that overwhelms you. And so Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Whether you have walked the Christian life for decades, or you are here this morning and don't trust in Jesus, please hear this. Forgiveness from your sins is readily available to you. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You don't need to punish yourself sufficiently for your sins. No, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity love, and power. When you are overcome by your sin, ask God for his forgiveness. But the request will not just be for forgiveness. Anyone who believes what the Bible says about sin, that it is an imposter on God's good creation, that it is a thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy, That sin distorts the image of God in you, and so it takes away both God's glory and your joy. Anyone who believes those things won't just want to be forgiven from the consequence of sin, but will also want to be given the strength to overcome sin. And so Jesus sees you under the heavy burden of sin, and he sees all your self-made tools to deal with your sin. Ignoring it, explaining it away, distracting yourself, pointing to the sins of others. And he says, just ask for help. Everyone who asks, receives. And you may think, that's too easy. Overcoming my sin can't possibly be as easy as just asking. 
And in some ways, that's true. If we have in our mind some picture of sinless perfection the moment we get off our knees from prayer, then that objection is true. Jesus never promises that. For the Christian, this life will be a life where sin is mixed with righteousness. The old man still clings to life even though you are a new creation. But perhaps our doubts about the ease of asking don't really have to do with the biblical expectations about the Christian life in this world. Perhaps they have more to do with what we think about God. That's too easy. There's no way God would make it that easy on me. He isn't just going to give me something because I ask for it. Surely, He'd make me work for it. He'd make me sweat for it. And Jesus, who knows the sinful human heart, answers our objection. In verse 9, he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you doubt that God will give you good things? Do you think of Him as someone who is holding out on you? When you come and ask for His help, do you assume He doesn't really want to help you? And so prayer either feels pointless or it feels like begging for the attention of a disinterested deity. Jesus says, don't you see that even you aren't that mean to your children? You aren't going to trick your kids and give them evil things when they ask for good things. How much more? How much more generous is your heavenly Father than you? How much more willing is He to give good gifts? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? When we read the Sermon on the Mount, or any part of God's Word that calls us to obedience, and we picture ourselves doing it all on our own, independence, self-made men and women who are going to pull ourselves up off the ground and live the life that God wants us to live. When we picture that, God's law is crushing. It is an impossible burden. But that is not the picture that Scripture gives us. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus came to save His people from their sins. You no longer stand under the guilt of any of your sins if you trust in Christ. He has taken all that guilt upon Himself at the cross, and so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures tell us that we were never meant to live this life on our own. But you have been given the Holy Spirit of God to strengthen you and His people to live this life alongside of you and carry your burdens with you. And the Scriptures tell us that you have a Father in heaven. He doesn't just watch over you from afar. No, He will never leave you nor forsake you. He stands at the ready to give you all you need for life and godliness. And he promises that he won't withhold any good thing from you. 
our God is more ready to answer your prayer than you are even to ask. Brothers and sisters, our God is a generous God. He is not holding out on you. He is not leaving you to yourself to see if you will win or fail. He is holding you up, giving you everything you need for life and godliness. He beckons you to come to him for his mercy and his grace. Would you all pray with me? Father, we come to you now and we ask for your help. We ask for your help in our judgment, even our judgment of you and your law. Lord, we pray that we would see your law as a delight to the eyes, as sweeter than honey. We pray that we would see you as a generous God, that our vision wouldn't be impeded by our sin, but we would see the glory of your love for us in the face of Jesus. And we pray that these things would drive us to you again and again, that we would come to you for help in our time of need. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.